Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poets and poetry. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Danny Snelson. Hi, I'm Danny Snelson. Danny Snelson is a writer, editor, and archivist. He is the author of Radios, Executable Text, Epic Lyric Poem, and Inventory Arousal with James Hoff. His editorial work can be found online at UbuWeb, Pensound, Eclipse, and Jacket2. With Mashinka Ference and Avi Alpert, he is one-third of the Academic Performance Group Research Service. He is currently at work on a memoir entitled Apocalypse Diary. We talked to Danny about the Index to Apocalypse Diary. The project compiles all the apocalyptic prophecies made so far in his lifetime and treats them as though they had come true. The story of Danny's life unfolds through and around a series of cataclysms. As he grows up in Utah and becomes an artist, the world ends again and again. So I came very late to writing and art and poetry. Um, the first book of poetry that I ever read is Ron Silliman's Chanting. It uses the Fibonacci sequence to generate a kind of permutational, observational text really crafted out of fragments. So I, I became fixated on the, the rules and the reading of this book, and I fell deeply in love with it. I was a freshman in college already. I was taking a class with Craig Dworkin called... Um, well, he wanted to call the class Bondage, but my university didn't let him call it Bondage, so he changed the title to Recoding Forms, Decoding Forms, Deforming Codes. Um, and it was a class in experimental literature, so I really came um, in through the present and worked my way back from there. Um, I fell in love with these various strange experiments with language. My, my first poems treat the page as a field. Um, they start from uh, various kinds of conceptual gestures. They engage with form in a kind of playful way that creates new forms of reading. Um, this is my entry point, so I've always sort of taken this for granted, um, which I realize is not the case for many writers. In other words, I didn't really read anything poetic or resembling anything I produce in, my, in the entirety of my youth. Um, though I was a prodigious reader of science fiction, and um, I think I read every Clive Cussler book ever published. This amazing John Grisham-esque writer who created a character named Dirk Pitt, who works for NUMA, the National Underwater Marine Agency, um, in various like espionage exploits. One in which they actually um, have to, for some reason, because the, the again the world was always ending in these books, they had to um, inflate the Titanic because there was some important document on it so they could save the world. Um, I was a prodigious reader of really terrible literature for the first 18 years of my life. And um, without really knowing what I had gotten myself into, I started scanning books for Craig Dworkin's Eclipse. Uh, the first book I scanned was a magazine called Jimmy and Lucy's House of K, um, a tiny um, East, uh, East Village periodical of post-language writing and poetics um, in the late 1980s. I couldn't decipher a single page in this book. I had no idea what I was scanning, but I was so intrigued. Um, this really set up a, a long love affair with scanning, digitizing, and the relationship between experimental arts and literature 
and contemporary digital environments. Um, I've been working for a long time toward expanded forms of what literature can be, right? We're no longer limited to the page. We're no longer limited to certain metrical or prosodic conventions. Um, and I often find that the kind of imagined, the imagination of form uh, remains bound to things that are no longer holding form. So I've been very invested in thinking about how our cultural history is translated and transformed and reproduced in the present in front of us on our consoles. Um, I'm very interested in how creative forms can interface with that history, can bring history into the present moment uh, in digital forms and print forms and otherwise. I've always been very interested in writing projects that come out of research questions. Um, starting with the question and then seeing what kinds of forms that question might generate. Um, this takes everything from a scholarly essay to films or performances to incredibly structured writing exercises um, in the past. And I see all of those different kinds of cre creative activities being very interrelated. Uh, this project, I, I suppose, would be the first time that I've really tried to engage in a more um, essayistic or autobiographical or memoir genre um, while still working within a kind of research question, right? So a, fun, a, a kind of basic question, um, what are the various dates in which the apocalypse has been prophesied in which the world may have ended where I have been actually alive, right? And taking each of those seriously as a kind of thought experiment and thinking about how I would be able to weave my life into all of those facts if they indeed had happened. I have never really used the first person in any bit of creative writing that I've produced. And I think that the, the rampant artifice of the notion of writing one's own life within an impossible landscape uh, highlights the fictiveness of the self. Um, but also I think that there are certain selves that are worth muting and creating as artifice. Um, I have my own experiences of my youth, I have my own um, memories, but I have not, never really been very interested in pushing those on other people. Um, rather, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about the ways in which this narrative might efface um, that position and, and might efface that subjectivity while still trying to sing it as, as beautifully as I can. I think one of the least convincing and um, tedious arguments that various avant-garde poetics in the last 20 years have made have concerned the erasure of the self as um, a kind of heroic Cajun or Warholian gesture. Um, in each of the works I've done, I've really tried to present in a variety of ways a self, a human working behind a text. This has been my way of, of trying to, one, uh, reject the polemic arguments and the, the various infights about lyric subjectivity in poetry, um, but two, to try to turn the angle of vantage and, and to think about the actual experience and practice of writing as one that is always embodied, that is always placed in, indeed, a human <laughs> at a console at a time when our consoles are producing more texts than humans are. 
but it's something I've, I've really wanted to work on for a while. I've, I've engaged with um, uh, Mormon theology in a variety of different ways. Uh, I've worked with different kinds of speculative concepts in other books um, and have long been interested in trying to think about how to write a memoir that would inhabit a continual end to the world. Um, this book project is, is relatively open at this point. So the poem that I read for you is really the index or a set of con uh, a, a set of contents or concordances for the book to come. Um, and so I think that the the chapters each chapter will follow a year um, and the various prophecies about that year and my experiences in that year and the form of each of those will really be dependent on the kinds of texts I encounter and the kind of research I do. So more than anything, it's, it's like a prospectus, a proposal for an academic project, which is indeterminate in nature and open to the forms that I encounter. So I've been looking at a lot of long lists of all the apocalyptic deadlines. I've been looking at more archaic texts. I've been looking at the crazy ramblings of pastors who publish um, the end of the world on billboards, right? And so I'm interested in exploring all these forms of prophecy and seeing how those forms might manifest differently chapter by chapter, producing a book of poetry that is kind of like a really, like a failed book of scholarship, like a really bad study <laughs> of the apocalypse, which is also somehow paired with a really bad autobiography. Um, and that somehow, if I continue to fail at both of those genres, I might be able to produce something interesting and worth reading. It's so interesting that I came in here, I was thinking about what I was going to say, and I was like reading like different kinds of apocalyptic thought, but I, I really am not a specialist in it at all. And I think that there's a, a value in being an amateur. I mean, everyone that I study is an amateur. And I think it's actually what makes the writing itself pleasurable is that I don't know very much about this topic. <laughs> like, I don't know what Americans think about the apocalypse. I, I read my science articles in my Facebook news feed like everybody else. Um, I have my own personal engagement with the Book of Mormon and its notion of when and how the world will end and what that will look like. And that produced a lot of childlike fantasies for me. Um, and I've often thought about the kind of millenarian um, and Y2K type styled uh, apocalyptic imagination in popular culture. Um, but I don't know how all those things connect. When I read the Book of Mormon as a child, I liked the indexes. I was really into thematic indexes to the ways in which a, a certain term had been used and reused um, to see all the places where the four horsemen appear. That's all really, really fascinating to me. Um, and so I've been interested in forms of literature that, that produce a kind of indexical relationship to the world at large, right? Um, and I think that the what I like about reading this is a poem, um, and I, I like the notion that an index to a larger book can be thought of as a poem, right? I think that might be a kind of symbolic gesture for the work as a whole, um, which is to think about a kind of rapid-fire production of a variety of ways of imagining the world, um, in a kind of equivalence, in a kind of indexical equivalence, where each of these things could, or indeed have already, or perhaps speculatively will come to pass. Um, and to try and imagine all those things simultaneously absolutely refuses a kind of linear narrative or world-building activity. It's, it's exactly turning that on its head. 
um, turning every sci-fi book, which I love, on its head and, and just getting to that juicy last page, right? Where the, the last scene in Fight Club and the whole thing blows up, right? I, I'm really interested in just trying to isolate those moments and see how they might speak to each other. So it's a kind of synchronic reading of all the ends of the world rather than the diachronic production of a feasible narrative of how this world might actually end, right? Which I think is also a kind of normalizing gesture. And I'm interested in trying to disrupt a normalization of the end of the world. Um, while there's farcical moments and aliens come and the second coming of Christ comes many, many times in a row, uh, I am thinking about the actual end of the world, right? Where we really may end in a nuclear apocalypse, where uh, the threat of ecological collapse in the hottest February in recorded history um, is nearer than ever. Apocalypse Diary I was born alongside the first glimpse of Y2K in the waning days of 1984. In this year, an Illinois couple, Jerome and Marilyn Murray, first predicted the end in their book, Computers in Crisis, The Coming Worldwide Computer Systems Collapse, wherein they wrote, quote, We have placed our confidence, physical and economic well-being, and future home in the development of a technology now seen to be fatally flawed through collective human oversight. What have we done? What will we do? End quote. My mother recounts untouched snow under black sky as she carried me out, at which point the computer spat back 1900, followed by endless blankets of millenarian inscription within which I have begun to record this text, my apocalypse diary. These facts, I guess, are beside the point, as the earth had already collapsed in 1983, the year before I was born, due to an ecological catastrophe wrought about by the population bomb. Concordances. 1985, in which Maitreya channels global annihilation as a result of a war between the USSR and the United States, as seen by Lester Sumrall in I Predict 1985. Incidentally, Jesus returns for the first time in my lifetime, and Yul Brenner dies. Then Halley's Comet was pulled into Earth's orbit, causing total destruction. Then Armageddon took place because 144,000 people didn't gather in certain places in the world in order to, quote, resonate in harmony on a particular day. At some point, I moved from my birthplace in Provo, Utah, to my hometown of Roy, a small rural community in northern Utah. Then the rapture of the Christian church occurred between the 11th and 13th of September. Then the gap between mythology and reality remained stable. Then a nuclear war started, with the world ending again 12 years later, leading us to stockpile a shelter with supplies and weapons. 1990, in which the Gulf War was, quote, the war of Armageddon, which is the final war, end quote. Then the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming took place again. Then New York was destroyed by a nuclear bomb and the battle of Armageddon took place 40 days later. Then Jesus strolled through Sydney Harbor. I recall my baptismal experience in 1992, all in white, terrified I had done it wrong when I didn't feel the transformative warmth of the Holy Ghost as described by my uncle Anthony. Then a comet hit Jupiter, causing, quote, the biggest cosmic explosion in the history of mankind, end quote, and bringing an end to Earth. 1995, in which it failed to occur, then he revised the date, and it did occur. Then the world ended with the arrival of 16 million spaceships and a host of angels. Then, as Heaven's Gate foresaw, a spacecraft that was trailing the comet Hale-Bopp did it again. Then it was 6,000 years since creation and therefore the end of the world. 
My nightmares at this time are marked in equal step by impending nuclear holocaust and the inescapable feeling that I must, despite my own wishes, become a prophet of the church. Then God came to earth in a flying saucer at 10 a.m., appearing on Channel 18 on every TV set in the United States. Then the King of Terror came from the sky in 1999 in seven months, which led to the end. 2000 in which the president of Yale University foresaw a Christ millennium starting while the last judgment occurred, while the Antichrist rose to power, while the planetary lineup would cause a star holocaust, pulling the planets toward the sun, triggering a disruption of Earth's polar ice caps, i.e., quote, ice, the ultimate disaster, end quote, while the kingdom of heaven was established. I collapsed after nearly killing my best friend in a late-night car accident two weeks after learning how to drive. Meanwhile, a Y2K computer bug crashed on midnight of December 31st, 1999 and caused malfunctions leading to major catastrophes worldwide and society ceased to function. End of part one. Part two. 2001, in which the New Age doomsday cult Aquarian Concepts community in Arizona survived the rest of humanity while the Seventh-day Adventist ended the world. I finally quit sports to pursue the arts. Meanwhile, the Unarius Academy of Science confirmed that the Space Brothers landed their UFOs in California because the Earth was ready to give over control to an alien empire. 2002, in which Yoruba priests foresaw dramatic tragedy and crisis, including coups, war, disease, and flooding, while Mike Keller revealed Doomsgate, which opened half a second before midnight, Israeli time, then followed immediately by the second coming, then nuclear war. I recalled David Caspar Friedrich's wanderer above a sea of fog and a painting of lightning on a horizon in a nondescript Middle Eastern vista. Meanwhile, the 12-year nuclear war foreseen by the Church Universal and triumphant leader Elizabeth Clare Prophet ended the world. 2003, in which aliens in the Zeta Reticuli star system told Nancy Leader through messages via brain implant of a planet which entered our solar system and caused a pole shift on Earth that destroyed most of humanity, while Nuwabians in Georgia found a UFO to beam up true believers. I left Utah. Meanwhile, Panawave, Aum Shirinko, a Japanese group, found a tenth planet that plasted Earth in doing the same thing. 2004, in which Taoist prophet Ping Wu reflected on major world events in 1999 that led to World War III in 2000 and were followed by a rebirth from the ashes in 2004 while I discovered a new faith in Professor Cornell West. 2005, in which I be witnessed the beginning of Christ's millennium. 2006, in which a Kenyan cult calling itself the House of Yahweh believed the world wasn't to end in a conflict between the USA and North Korea becoming the Battle of Armageddon. Mose Sang took his followers into a cave and blamed a difference in time zones for the war not starting. I remained in Eastern Standard Time. Yahweh is a stated name of a featured deity in the Old Testament slash Torah. This cult is a worldwide thing, but it seems only the Kenyan sect held doomsday beliefs. They were founded in Abilene, Texas, according to their website, www.yahweh.com, which just proves yet again that no good can come from Texas. 2007, in which Pat Robertson brought back brought about the new millennium, which heralded a springtime date for Earth's destruction. I traveled to Tokyo, desperate to leave the country. Meanwhile, Hal Lindsey witnessed the second, second coming. 2008, in which Sarah Palin dies having seen the end times as a key member of the final generation. I worked at recorded books in Union Square, perfecting the live performance of literature for the publication of audio objects. Meanwhile, the Large Hadron Collider experiment went forward, creating temperatures a million times hotter than the center of the sun, which hadn't been reached since the first billionths of a second following the Big Bang, harming significant chunks of the Earth and ultimately destroying the world with black holes, strangelets, and various ruptures in space-time. 2009, in which an earth-shattering calamity engulfs the whole megaplex, including areas of New Jersey and Connecticut, I meet the love of my life. Meanwhile, major cities all across America experience riots and blazing fires. 
2010, in which the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn got it right. Meanwhile, I moved to Astoria, Queens, to be with Masha Interference in every possible moment. 2011, in which the third Second Coming arrives first on May 21st, then on September 29th, then again on October 21st, for which we had ample warnings with thanks to Harold Camping and his followers, who funded a bundle of billboards announcing these double inevitabilities while God took approximately 3% of the world's population into heaven. I continue my studies in Philadelphia. 2012, in which NASA failed to push away space rock while Earth collided with the Pleiades star cluster while we witnessed another glorious second coming of Christ. I published a recoded version of an index to the LDS General Conference as my personal autobiography. Meanwhile, we witnessed the Mayan apocalypse at the end of the 13th Baktun, in which the Earth was destroyed by an asteroid, Nibiru, and other interplanetary objects, as well as an alien invasion and a supernova while the world's governments and economies failed, and Jose Luis de Jesus and his followers underwent a transformation that allowed them to fly and walk through walls. End of part two. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all our episodes. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us on iTunes. It really helps. Join us next time for an interview with Jennifer Nelson.